can turn in your Bible to Joshua chapter 2. That's what we'll look at this morning. Uh, We're taking these Sundays in Advent, and uh, the Sunday immediately after Advent, which is Christmas Sunday, um, five Sundays here to consider the five women whose names are recorded in Jesus' genealogy that we find in Matthew 1. Um, The the Mothers of Jesus is the name of the series. So um, Advent is the time in the church calendar for uh, sort of remembering anticipation, uh, remembering the state of the world's desperate need for a Savior, and then remembering the first coming of the Son of God into the world as a, as a human being to restore us through his own humanity, through his life and, and death and resurrection and ascension uh, on our behalf. And then uh, also not just remembering but anticipating, looking ahead uh, for ourselves to his return uh, from heaven to renew the earth. And um, that's generally, generally what the church uses the Advent season for. By looking at the stories of these women in Jesus' family tree, uh, we get a pretty clear picture of, of people who are in serious need of God's grace. Thinking of the, the state of uh, desperation that the world is in, uh, remembering what that's like uh, before uh, the Savior came, especially in the Old Testament. But uh, we see that in the, the stories of these women, we also get a wonderful picture of the kind of grace God has in store for uh, people like us. The Bible always gives us uh, a really honest, maybe too vividly honest sometimes, uh, picture of the way things really are, even to the point of kind of scandalizing our sensibilities with the honesty of the scriptures. Uh, that's definitely happening with the women in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, just the fact that they're included in that, uh, in that record in that list of names in the family tree, uh, just the fact that they're in there, it ran contrary to, to customs, uh, social norms of the time, and it would have just jumped right off the page to any ancient readers, and it would have caused them to consider their stories and kind of remember that as a, a significant aspect of the genealogies, so the fact that these women were included. And their stories, each of these women, uh, their stories share certain features. The women are all, except for Mary, All of them are Gentiles, so they're not part of the people of God uh, ethnically or nationally or, uh, you know, uh, from their their heritage, their birth. Um, They're all Gentiles, and that means that they're all kind of the stereotypical outsiders. And as women uh, in those ancient cultures, they're all at the mercy of uh, more powerful men in society. As women, they were at the mercy of men who were more powerful uh, in the society that they lived in. And a major factor in each of their stories is kind of a question of their sexual fidelity, basically. Every single one of the the women uh, have that questionable reputation. A few of of them are actually both victims and perpetrators of uh, sexual immorality. And each one, every single one of the women uh, in the genealogy would have evoked gasps and gossip and grumbling um, uh, wherever they went, whether they'd actually done anything to deserve it or not. Uh, that, that, that would have been the reaction people had to them. Their stories aren't just told for the sake of telling shocking stories. Right? They're not just there for the shock value. They all show how God, by his grace, brings healing and beauty and love into the lives of people who are otherwise just given up for ruined. Right? Um, there's, there's hardly a better picture of this kind of redeeming grace in the whole Bible than the story of Rahab the prostitute. 
So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll read Joshua 2. Father, we pray that this, uh, this passage, this series, this season in the time of um, the world and in your church would not be wasted, that your word would bear fruit in our lives, that we would be changed by it, that we would come to know ourselves more clearly in light of your word, that we would come to know you and your grace more clearly in light of your word. We pray that you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit as we read it and hear it and, uh, and hear it proclaimed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab. And they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Well, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they are from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them as on, on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Ga- and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. But uh, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. 
And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, back up to give you a little bit of context to uh, where we are in the book of Joshua here. Uh, several hundred years, more than 400 years before, um, before this took place, God had promised to Abraham. He took this guy out of nowhere, just regular old guy, just like any other guy. He took him out of nowhere, uh, Abraham, and um, he had made promises to him that through his family, through Abraham's family, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that his descendants would become a great nation, that they would be given the land that belonged to the Canaanites. Uh, and after God's promises to Abraham, that family pretty much looked like it was heading towards self-destruction for several generations. Uh, it was off to a faltering start. Uh, they ended up as slaves in Egypt. But there they grew in number. And remember the story of the Exodus. God used Moses to bring them out of their slavery. Uh, used a lot of miracles, these plagues. And he, he took them out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea before them and closed it behind them to destroy all of Pharaoh's army, uh, which is what uh, Rahab's referring to when she uh, is talking to these spies in our passage to lead them into this land, to lead them into the land of Canaan that he had promised to them. And Israel, uh, on the way, they rebelled against him in the wilderness, um, on the way to the land. So God caused them to wander the desert for like 40 years, right? Until a generation, a whole generation of them had died. And Moses himself had died with them uh, in the wilderness. Not, I mean, just like in sight of the promised land, but not in the promised land. Moses died, and he left Joshua in charge of the people. And now they stood here on the brink of invasion. Pretty much, they're just ready to cross the Jordan River at these fords and, um, that are near Jericho and take the land, right? They're standing there ready for it. Uh, God was about to deliver on all of his promises that were long in the making. A lot of anticipation was leading up to this point, and they're about to see the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams as the people who are wandering in the desert for 40 years. Things are going to get way better here really soon. And uh, <coughs> they're in this place called Shatim. And this place had, uh, I mean, it was full of bad memories for them. Uh, it had some significance for them uh, in their wanderings for the people of Israel as a place where they had um, they'd really messed things up. They devoted themselves to the false gods of the, the people of the land. Uh, more on that in a few minutes. But <clears throat> Joshua, from this place called Shatim, sent out two spies to check out Jericho. Uh, it's a fortified city. It's a walled city. Uh, it's probably the oldest fortified city known to man um, that probably had like two walls around it. And Rahab's house was probably built kind of in between these two walls as uh, it would be the custom probably for, for poor people to have their homes there. Um, and it, and this, this city, Jericho, was strategically placed at a spot uh, near the Jordan River where it was easy to cross. There were no bridges. There were just these places where the water could be low enough and, and slow enough that you could get across and at these fords. And so uh, Jericho was kind of strategically pl placed there as, a, as an outpost as kind of to guard the land of Canaan from uh, invasion. And for whatever reason, these spies, when they come into Jericho to check things out, uh, they find their way to Rahab's house. And the Bible does not... Um, just generally doesn't shy away from um, 
recording scandalous encounters. So if the spies had gone there to pay for her services as a prostitute, uh, it probably would be clear to us from the text that that was the case. Uh, but it could be, I mean, it's, it's not really clear. So it could be that they thought, you know, it was a good place to stay under the radar, right? The, the further on the, like the edge of the city that you go among the poor people, it's unlikely that you're going to be run across by the king and his men. Um, <clears throat> staying under the radar or, or it's near the wall, which gives them a quick escape or uh, that it maybe was just unplanned on their part, right? And maybe she just said, hey, come on, stay in here. Uh, and they took her up on the offer. Who knows? Um, it's mostly speculative at that point, but apparently they're not very good spies, right? They're not very good spies because they're discovered and they're reported to the king of Jericho who uh, demands then that Rahab would turn them over. Um, she hides the spies. She covers for them by lying about it, right? It's probably good that she hid them. It's probably good. I mean, the scriptures say uh, later in, in James, it was good that she hid them and she let them out by another way. Uh, but the scriptures don't commend the, the lying part. This, this um, it's very complicated, right? It's not meant to be a case study in ethics to help us to solve moral dilemmas, right? You've all heard the moral dilemma, what happens when the Nazis come knocking on your door and you've got Jews hidden in your home, do you lie about it or not? Because lying is dishonest. It's, you know, you're not supposed to lie, but maybe it's better to protect the people who are in your house. This is, it's a similar kind of a situation, but it's not meant to give us the answers to those kinds of situations. That's not the point uh, of the story being told. In the, in the New Testament, Rahab is commended for her faith, Hebrews 11. Um, she's there with you know, the rest of the hall of faithers. Uh, faithers that, and and good, uh, she's commended for her good works of, kind of hospitality and uh, protection of these spies in James chapter 2. But the Bible doesn't say that it was good that she lied. Right? Um, it's kind of reading too much into the story to figure you know, it's okay to lie because of these circumstances or whatever. It's just not the point of the story. In fact, uh, many times over, the Bible explicitly condemns lying. It goes against the very nature of God as the one who is truth. This part of the story simply reflects kind of the brokenness of the world that we live in, where it's kind of hard to make the perfect decisions and, and, and exercise the perfect actions in every situation. It's almost impossible, really, probably, for us to, to do always what is good and right. This part of the story simply reflects kind of the mixture of good and bad that we see even in a person who's beginning to respond to God, right? Even in a person who's turning away from an old life, turning to a new life of faith, uh, it's really hard to get everything right. Uh, but God uh, ultimately can take those things into consideration and make them part of his own plans, right? So uh, nobody gets obedience perfect. Nevertheless, God can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. He can strike a straight blow even with a crooked stick. Right, so that's, that's what we see in this passage. Rahab's deception of the king to protect the spies is kind of a hint. It's kind of a reminder she's not the perfect hero of the story, right? Um, uh, as if we needed kind of other reminders that she's not really perfect, right? Uh, you know, usually we see her name recorded in the New Testament, and what do we see? It's Rahab the prostitute, Everybody knows this is Rahab the prostitute. She's not a perfect person by any stretch of the, the word. Uh, it, always being reminded of, of her sin. Hebrews 11, by faith, Rahab the prostitute. 
didn't perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. James 2, Rahab the prostitute, the one who received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So the Bible keeps pointing out what kind of person she is, right? Uh, keeps pointing out what kind of person she is. In and of herself, she is probably not the kind of person you would be inclined to warmly receive. Right? She's probably not the kind of person you want to have over to your house. In and of herself, right? Uh, she's a prostitute in her hometown, right? In the vicinity of her, her large family, her father and mother and brothers and their families, right? That's uncomfortable. That's awkward, at the very least, to be a prostitute in your hometown. It means that either before she became a prostitute or after she became a prostitute, you know, she was abused or she was shunned by her family uh, and humiliated. Maybe she's doing the only thing she could think of to survive, letting, letting men um, use her body for money. Right? Um, who knows how and why she got into that life, but we know it's not a good life. Um, it's not a good life for her to be in it. And, and probably, probably, as we know with uh, prostitution in modern times, it's probably a mixture of things. Like she was a victim and a perpetrator of, uh, of sexual sins, right? Uh, both these things are mixed into her life. It's not easy to sort out that mess and to untangle that mess uh, of the parts of our lives where, you know, we fall victim to the sins of others and the parts where we're guilty of our own sins and how, they, how these parts all contribute to our ruin, she was a ruined person. Right? And it was a big old mess how she got there. Um, and it's a messed up world. We're messed up people living in it. And you don't have to figure out every detail of how messed up it is in order to know that you need some serious help if your life is going to take a new path, right? If your life is going to take, <clears throat> take a turn. So she's a prostitute. She uh, doesn't have a problem with lying. You know, she's uh, a traitor to her city, to her people. But she also had some small glimpse of the one true God. And she points out the fact that he really is the one true God. There really is no other God. He is the God of uh, the heavens and the earth. Uh, and, and we're talking about Yahweh. It's the, the special name by which God has revealed himself to his people. This is like his first name, in a sense. His covenant name, the name by which his people know him as their God, uh, she refers to him that way and says he's, he's God, right? Um, and implied is that uh, all the other gods are false. There, there are no other gods before him. <clears throat> she had a response of faith to what she knew about him. She probably knew very little, but she had a response of faith. You know, she says, I know that the Lord, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. Everybody's terrified of you. You, uh, he's worked miracles on your behalf and you've destroyed kings on the way. Everybody's terrified of you. Nobody has any spirit left in them. Please deal kindly with me. Right? I've, I've dealt kindly with you. I've shown you this word for kindness is um, hesed. It's this love. It's this, uh, this, this extreme loving kindness that's often attributed to God. It's a gracious love. I've shown that to you. Please show that to me. Right? Please be kind with me um, and deliver our lives from death, me and my family. I mean, she'd heard... What everybody else, she heard what everybody else in Jericho heard about Yahweh, that he was working for his people and working against their enemies. She'd heard that 
all the inhabitants of the land had heard that, all the people in her city had heard that. But while everybody else had a response of fear that would ultimately lead them to fight against the one true God and against his people, Rahab, with the very same information, she has a response of faith that would lead her to seek refuge among God's people, to, to seek refuge among Yahweh's people. <clears throat> the spies then accepted her defection, her change of allegiances, and they said that uh, they would protect her when Jericho was destroyed if she would tie this scarlet cord up in the window. Now, um, <clears throat> we need to be careful about reading too much into the scarlet cord. I think there's been some uh, sermons where it's just hyper-allegorized or whatever, but I think there is actually a lot of symbolism uh, at work here with this idea of the scarlet cord. We know from the text that it's, uh, it's about the time of Passover. Actually, um, so in verse 6 where it says there's flax laid on the roof, it's, it's laid out for drying, and the harvest time is kind of late March, early April. That's the same time as Passover, right? We know that. It's the same time as Easter for us. So um, it's about that time. Also, uh, we see in chapter 5 of Joshua that uh, the Jews would celebrate Passover immediately before invading Jericho. And uh, so it was just within a few weeks of that time. So it's something that uh, probably, you know, is on the mind of the spies. There's clear significance. There's clear uh, significance in the similarity between placing the red blood of the lamb on your doorposts to mark out your house and... um, and tying a scarlet cord in your window for the purpose of identifying you as someone who would be spared from God's wrath, the coming destruction, right? There's clear similarities there, and there's clear significance in the similarities there. On the original Passover night, when God's people, Israel, were slaves in Egypt, and he was working his miracles to set them free and and get them out of the land of Egypt, uh, he said that there was no difference between his people and the Egyptians, right? In and of themselves, there's no difference between them. They're they're all the same kind of sinners. They're all in the same kind of mess. They all deserve death, really. That's what sinners deserve. Rebels against God deserve uh, death as punishment for our sins. Everybody's in the same boat. There's no difference between Israel and Egypt. On the original Passover night, the firstborn of every household will be killed. Every household. Without discrimination. Uh, Unless a lamb was sacrificed and its blood was marking your door. Unless there was a sacrificial lamb killed and its blood marked you out, you and your family, your, you and your household, marked you out. <clears throat> in the same way here, there's no difference between Rahab and the rest of the people in Jericho. There's no difference. They're the same. They're the same kind of people. Uh, everyone in Jericho would be destroyed when God brought his people through the land. Right? Everyone would be destroyed except for the household where there's a scarlet cord in the window. Right? Um, so it doesn't matter what kind of good Rahab had done toward Yahweh and toward his people if she didn't take the prescribed way of salvation, putting that cord in the window and everybody staying inside the house for that shelter, for that protection, the way that God had set it out, his, his people had set it out uh, before her, then if, if she didn't take that, she was lost. It doesn't matter how good she was, how much she helped. If she didn't do that, she was lost. It was only the mercy of God through this scarlet cord marking her out that would uh, spare her. But when she was spared, she and all her household, everybody who was with her, all of her family, uh, what mercy and grace and kindness, Hesed, you know, that, that gracious love. 
Uh, it's amazing because in, in Joshua 6, we see that <clears throat> she was spared. Rahab the prostitute and her fa- father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Joshua saved them all alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. It says in that text, I mean, she, she wasn't told when she was saved, when they pulled her out of this city that was just collapsing and on fire, and she deserved to be there with the rest of them, but she'd been spared by mercy. She wasn't told, now get out of my sight. Run before I change my mind. Right? She wasn't told that. Everything was new for her now as she lived among God's people for the rest of her life. And as far as the biblical record goes, we don't discover it. I mean, it's kind of a surprise when you start reading the New Testament, when you start reading Matthew 1, that genealogy, um, we don't know just to what extent she was incorporated into God's own people right before that point. As far as the biblical record goes, we don't discover until that genealogy that she married into the line of the Messiah himself. She married into that line. I mean, can you imagine? So her husband is Salmon. Uh, in Luke's genealogy, he's called Salah. I don't know what that means. Probably something having to do with peace. But uh, Salmon, not salmon like the fish we eat, right? <clears throat> but um, can you imagine Salmon bringing her home to meet the parents? Mom, Dad, this is Rahab. I want you to meet her. Uh, you know, the turncoat prostitute from the pagan city we destroyed. Right? The prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. Um, I mean, can you imagine the gasps and the gossip and the grumblings that she might have endured, that she probably would endure if she joined, say, a church in the suburbs? Rahab the prostitute coming into our church. What kind of gasps and gossip and grumbling would that generate? But with God's people, she received a new life. And apparently they welcomed her with open arms, even as one of their own. They brought her all the way in. Is this something that she deserved? No. Her life was a huge mess. She was not on any sort of trajectory to any sort of happy ending. No handsome prince would have given her a second look. Um, But by God's grace, a handsome prince ended up marrying her. Right? And her own baby boy would be one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. I mean, you see this almost without exception. Anybody who uh, gets their name printed in the Old Testament, they get their, uh, their sins exposed, right? Almost everybody who gets their name in the Old Testament is shown to be a bad guy for this reason or that. Except for Boaz, he gets a lot written about him in the book of Ruth. And it looks like it's all good. Right? He's a pretty good guy, her son. Um, and that's meant, and we'll talk about that uh, next week when we talk about Ruth, but uh, that's meant to, to point forward to who he represented, right? Uh, Jesus Christ. But that's her, her baby boy, Boaz. He's going to be a great guy. Her great-great-grandson, David, would be the greatest of the kings, right? And one of her descendants would be Jesus, the savior of the whole world. Rahab the prostitute. I mean, how's that for a redemption story? I mean, you can see that this is not just a story about Rahab. Right? It's not just a, a story told for shock value, some curiosity recorded in some ancient text that really has no significance for people like us anymore. 
This is not just a story about Rahab. It's a story about what the redeeming God is doing in the world throughout history and how he does it and the people that he does it for. This story is meant for all of God's people to hear as their own story. We're meant to hear it as our story. Remember how in verse 1 the scene starts off in a place called Shittim. I said that it was a place of bad memories for them. If you go back to uh, Numbers chapter 25, um, you see during Israel's wanderings in the wilderness, it says, while they lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They gave themselves as prostitutes to the people of the land. These, uh, these people, the daughters of Moab, they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and there was a plague, and like 24,000 people died in this plague. Right? Because they had given themselves, as a people, they had given themselves in prostitution to false gods. Um, several times throughout the Bible, God's people as a whole are likened to uh, an adulterous spouse or to a prostitute. Think the book of Hosea. Because uh, they've given themselves wholly to false gods. They've, They've turned away from the one true God and they've looked for their comfort, their security, their protection, their love, their hopes and joys to all be fulfilled in something other than the one true God. And God, God calls that prostitution, right? spiritual prostitution. The relationship that God's people are supposed to have with God, that relationship that we're supposed to have with Yahweh is the relationship of a wife to her husband. A wife to her husband. I mean, that's um, all over the place in the scriptures. What is that kind of relationship supposed to be characterized by? A relationship of a wife, wife to a husband. Things like love and beauty and passion, faithful passion, and joy, and security, and intimacy, right? These kinds of things, that's what is supposed to characterize the relationship between a wife and her husband, the relationship between God's people and him. Go read Psalm 45. We read it this morning in, in the prayer, right? Um, it was in the, uh, it was, I think it was yesterday's reading for the uh, Advent readings. Go read Psalm 45. Go read the Song of Solomon, Go read uh, Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19, right? where that picture of, the, of a union between a man and a woman in marriage is supposed to reflect the relationship between God and his people. Right? That's, that's what our relationship is supposed to be characterized by. God is the God of union. Right? God is the God of union. He is a God who, in a sense, is union. He's the union of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect union, in complete union, eternal union, and we were made in his image as men and women, people who marry, right? Genesis 2. We were made in God's image, the image of the God of union, for a special everlasting union with him. That's what we were made for, uh, and earthly marriage is a reflection of that. Earthly marriage is a foretaste of that. It's a little, little bit of a hint of what it's like for God uh, to dwell with his people as a husband dwells with his wife. And Peter Mead, he has a book <clears throat> called Pleased to Dwell. It's a book, uh, kind of an introduction to the incarnation. And he talks about in this book the marital intent in everything. He says that marriage is the great picture 
of God's intent to unite the diverse into the delight of true unity. Right? That's what God's doing with everything. Everything in the whole universe is being summed up and united in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And marriage is a picture of that. Marriage is a huge, constant theme in the biblical history of humanity. From the first marriage in Genesis 2 between Adam and Eve, then the Bible traces broken marriage after broken marriage. Pretty much only. Broken marriages, abusive husbands, cheating wives, insecurity, lies, jealous suspicions... And every once in a while, you get a picture of how it's supposed to be in stark contrast with how things are because of our spiritual unfaithfulness, our spiritual prostitution. Right? So with Rahab, the Gentile, the one whose life is generally characterized by spiritual prostitution, and she's the prostitute actually in real life, right? She's Rahab, the Gentile prostitute, someone without hope, someone not in union with God, someone who is outside of that covenant, being married and brought into God's own family. And that shows what is true of each and every one of us. Having given ourselves to the false gods and to the idols of this world, having pursued a deep drink at other wells, having pursued deep spiritual eternal union with anything but Yahweh, the one true God, that the divine bridegroom would step in and he would win us to himself and he would shower us with his love and take us home as his own. That's true of all of us because of Jesus. I mean, remember the the gospel reading that Rainey read from Luke 5 Jesus had gone about, he was handpicking his disciples, he handpicked, he chose this one guy who was a tax collector, right, who um, is in everybody's sight in Israel when they were being oppressed by the Romans, and this guy is kind of worse than the Romans, he's worse than Gentiles, because he's one of us and he's working with them, he's working with our oppressors to oppress us, to extort us, to get rich off of uh, taking too many taxes from us, right? Tax collectors were hated people. They were outcasts. They were not on the inside here. He's the the kind of guy everybody knew was a traitor to his countrymen and uh, working with the bad guys. Jesus went to his house. He picked him out of the crowd and said, you're with me. And he went to his house for a great feast, it says, with all the local sinners, all the bad guys, right? Get them all together for a great feast. It's the kind of people that decent folks gasp and gossip and grumble about. And the decent folks ask Jesus, what are you doing eating and drinking with them? Why are you at this party? Why are you hanging out with them at this festive occasion? Why are you here doing this? And Jesus says, I came for sinners and we're partying because the bridegroom's here. I came for people like this, and I'm the bridegroom, and so people are happy. And you get the idea that he's happy too. And if you grumble at those sinners over there, 
Do you grumble at them? If you distinguish yourself from them, if you don't see yourself in broken people exactly like Rahab the prostitute, then you, you can't know what it means that Jesus is this bridegroom. He's the bridegroom for people like that. You can't separate yourself from people like that if you're going to know Jesus as the bridegroom to people like that. There's, there's profound grace involved in Jesus uniting himself to you. Profound grace, it's like a good husband marrying the prostitute, clearly not for her virtues, but because he will make her beautiful by his love for her, by his grace. He will make her whole and beautiful. The way into this relationship is the same for us as it was for Rahab. You know, if she's going to be spared the coming destruction that she deserved along with the rest of the pagan Jericho and the Canaanites, she was going to be brought in to the people of Israel and live among them as one of them. If that was going to be uh, her destiny, she had to throw herself on the, the, the loving kindness of God and find deliverance the way that she was told to find deliverance right? uh, with that scarlet cord. Right? And like the Jews at the Exodus, they were going to be spared. They needed to do what they were told and put the lamb's blood on the, the door. And for us, it's seeking mercy, seeking forgiveness, seeking redemption how God himself has told us we need to do it through the person and work, especially the sacrifice of his own son. We sing it sometimes, see his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it and death passes over. His blood marks the lives of sinners, bad people, so that they will be saved from what they rightly deserve as sinners, so that they'll be saved for a beautiful union that they don't deserve as a free gift of God's grace. Maybe, uh, maybe you've lived an outwardly decent life. You're holding everything together to kind of get love from everyone around you. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's clear for all to see how much your life is a mess, complete and utter brokenness. Either way, you need God's mercy, just like Rahab needed it. Exactly the same. Either way, it doesn't matter who you are. You need God's mercy just like Rahab needed it. And in Jesus Christ, you have it. You have God's mercy. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you've received God's mercy through him, that it'll change the way that you view your relationship with him, the way you view yourself. It'll change the way you treat other sinners, right? I mean, you'll know the only thing that matters in your life, the only thing that could ever set you apart from anybody else is God's mercy, right? Set you apart from the coming destruction that everybody deserves, It's God's mercy alone. It's not anything in you. It's not who you are, what you've done, or what you deserve. In fact, it's in the face of what you deserve that you get mercy like this. It's something you can never take credit for, and it'll cause you to rejoice in God's mercy for people like you. That he would pledge himself to you. That he would take you to himself for eternal union, of which the most blissful marriage is only a shadow. You, uh, you won't gasp and gossip and grumble at those really bad people over there anymore, right? But your first thought will be when you see people's sins and warts and weaknesses exposed, the first thought you're going to have is, well, that reminds me of me. Yeah, that reminds me of me. And you'll start to be able to relate to them instead of distancing yourself from them. Yeah. Um, you can overcome the weirdness about their problems, 
These people have some weird problems. So maybe not exactly the kind of problems that you have, right? But you can overcome the weirdness, the awkwardness, the, the stigma of their problems with grace. It's the same grace that you received from Jesus. It's fully welcoming grace that treats others as better than yourself. That's the kind of grace Jesus showed you. Fully welcoming grace that treats others as better than yourself. It's the kind of grace you received and the kind of grace you can extend. You can hope for his grace to be at work in other people's lives. You can pray for it, right? Um, not just despising other people for their sins, but praying for them, really, that they'd come into a relationship with Jesus. You, you can even begin to enjoy those people. You can start to like people. Jesus likes people. He likes people like you. And like Rahab the prostitute. And you can start to enjoy people. Enjoy sinners. Have fun uh, spending time with them. Celebrate the things that you have in common with them, you, which are a lot. You can, you can celebrate with them while at the same time hoping to share Jesus with them also. Hoping to have that in common too at some point. Right? Um, after all, Jesus came to eat and drink. That, that's partying, right? He came to eat and drink with sinners like you to make people like you new and beautiful in his church to be his bride forever, the bride of his youth in whom is all his delight. But do you think Jesus is, uh, is reluctant to take broken people? Do you think he's reluctant to take sinful people like you to be his bride? The story of Rahab, the whole story of her as we see it through the scriptures, and the whole story of the Bible says otherwise. He's not reluctant. Taking a bride uh, merely to tolerate her? I mean, none of us would do that, right, guys? I mean, it's not your wildest dream to marry somebody so that you can tolerate her for a really long time, for eternity. You know? That's not the point of this kind of union. It's a miserable conception of marriage, we all probably think that in the back of our minds, Jesus is just tolerating me. You know? um, he didn't come into the world just to tolerate you. He didn't come into your life through his spirit who lives in you just to tolerate you. Right? Our God is a God of delight. He's not a mean God. He's not a stoic God. Eternity won't just be some stasis of nothingness for us. He's a God of eternal joy, eternal delight, and he came into the world and into your life for the joy of it. And if you can believe that while believing at the same time that this is the furthest thing from what you actually deserve, being a sinner, right? You can hold those two things together, then your delight in him will grow and it'll spill over into all of your life and all of your relationships with anybody. Um, and this whole life will, in a sense, just be the warm-up for the real thing. I mean, it's real. This life is real. I'm not questioning that. But in a sense, uh, it's just a little tiny point on the timeline of, of, uh, of eternity with God. And it's just the warm-up, right? This is just the engagement almost, as it, uh, as it were. And on the last day, when Jesus comes again, the Bible says he'll be coming like a bridegroom to his wedding feast. Right? This is where the real party begins, and we, his church, his bride, will be made beautiful, will be made bright and pure, and will join him in joyful love that will last forever and grow forever. And that's your true and sure hope because of who he is, not because of who you are. 
right, because of who he is and what he's done in history. Uh, close with this. Karl Barth <clears throat> talks about the fact, and we've, we've considered this before, that God, um, God didn't need any of us in order to love, in order to be happy. Right? He didn't have to create anything outside of himself to enjoy perfect communion. He enjoyed perfect communion from eternity as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit bound together in love and joy, right? He didn't need us. He's free from us in that way. He doesn't depend on us to give him something that, um, that he doesn't already have, right? He doesn't need us. Nevertheless, Karl Barth says, <clears throat> God wants, he wants, in his freedom, actually not to be without man but with him, not against him but for him counter to what man deserves. He wants that. So let that shape your worship. Let it shape your celebration of your relationship with God. And let it shape the way you treat other people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is uh, usually well beyond our imagining uh, your love for us and the fact that it was for the joy that was set before you Christ, that you came into the world to suffer and die. You suffered even the cross, the most humiliating and agonizing of deaths, in order to purify a bride for yourself, to create a bride who would be beautiful and spotless and bright and pure. Um, the magnitude of this, it, it will always escape us in this life. We look forward to the, face when we see, uh, the time when we see you face to face and we will really know ourselves in light of your grace, and we will really know your grace without any hindrance, without any weakness in our minds, without any faithlessness and unbelief. We pray that you would help us to grow in our trust in you, the fact that you love us as a good husband loves a wife. Let us see your love, your redeeming love, and let us be changed by it so that we would be the kind of people who joyfully extend your love to all kinds of people in our lives. We pray uh, in your name and for the sake of your kingdom, for the, the sake of the glory of your Father, we pray. Amen.